Uh, take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of um, uh, Acts, Acts chapter 16, and uh, it's a great opportunity to continue uh, looking at the way God works in this world, and this is a historical example of when the church was young, but it's a continual reminder that this is how God continues to work amongst us in the day and age in which we live. Um, as I was thinking about this passage of Scripture, a couple of things popped in mind. One is it's um, a fairly familiar uh, Sunday school passage of Scripture. You know, there's some Scriptures that lend themselves better to Sunday school than others. And this is one of those. Uh, you know, you have, a, you have a two guys that are thrown in jail, and you wonder what's going to happen to them. And there's this big earthquake that God sends along and, and uh, opens the jail door, and their, their chains fall off. And so, you know, we can say maybe one of the quick morals of the story is that God is able to deliver you from whatever circumstances you find yourselves in. And uh, if that's all that the message is, then, you know, we, I guess we're done and let's close in prayer and you could head out. But I think there's a little bit more to the story. As we get older and as we walk with God further, we find that there are um, things that, uh, that he just reveals to us that are helpful to us. And so we're going to look at some of those. And I think the second thing I was reflecting on is that this is Father's Day. And I can't imagine a better Father's Day than to be assured that every single father that is here today experiences what the Philippian jailer experienced, faith in Jesus Christ, he and his household. What a gift that would be to your family and um, to the family of God were you to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved today. I want to read the portion of Scripture starting at verse 25 of uh, chapter 16, and uh, we'll make some comments and observations about it this morning. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in the house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come now out and go into peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when he had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Father, thank you again, as we always do each Sunday, for your word. We know that what's recorded before us is history, but it's history that has been recorded by you for our good and for the sake of eternity. I thank you that in these words we find out a lot about you. We find out a lot about your way with this world. We find out how you draw men and women into a relationship with you. 
we learn about how we are to respond in the circumstances of life. We learn about Jesus Christ. And so I pray that as we consider this text this morning, that we would learn, that we would grow, and that maybe some would come into a relationship with Jesus Christ for the first time today. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. When we left off last Sunday morning, if you were here, we left off with uh, Paul and Silas having been beaten quite merciless. merciless, merciless. They were beaten <laughs> with rods. And uh, after they had been beaten and inflicted with many blows, they had been thrown into jail. And the jailer had been ordered to keep them safely. Having received his order, it says in verse 24 that he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in locks. Paul and Silas then were in jail now, and, and uh, it's not the kind of jail that most of us um, think about when we think about jails today. This jail probably would have been not much larger than a uh, two-car garage, and uh, it would have been probably either in the basement of this jailer's house or attached um, uh, to the side of his home. And it would not have been secured in the way that our jails are secured today, but there would have been gates and locks and iron bars and those sorts of things. And so this is where Paul and Silas found themselves, sore, beaten, and in jail. And we read that about midnight, they began to praise God. I better back up just for a moment here and say something else. Uh, it talks about the fact that the jailer had thrown them into jail and had set them, he had been ordered to guard them carefully. So as the text says, he put them in the inner parts of the prison and fastened their feet and their, uh, in stocks. And this was to ensure that they would not get out. His compliance with that order um, would have been taken very seriously because it was the Roman custom and Roman's law that if a prisoner escaped while you were guarding them, you would lose your life or forfeit your life. We see this, uh, we saw this back in Acts um, uh, chapter 5 when Peter was uh, released from prison and they interrogated, or Acts chapter 12, they interrogated the guards and they couldn't find the prisoners and so the guards were executed. We find the same theme illustrated in Acts chapter 27 in the shipwreck when they had a bunch of prisoners on board and they were going to go shipwreck and the guards were going to kill all the prisoners and Paul says you can't kill them or we'll all die. That was just what happened. If you lost a prisoner, you lost your life. And so he took this fairly seriously. And as we got to this time at the end of the day about midnight, I'm not sure if this is how Paul and Silas thought their day would end. I don't know if you've started a day and it's been all rosy and wonderful. And as the day begins to unfold, it seems to get worse and worse and worse. And by the end of the day, you're thinking, wow. This is not what I expected when I woke up this morning. Some of you may know um, Halda and Zenon Souter in our church. Um, Zenon's been in the hospital for a little bit over a week, and uh, his wife was going to visit him on, uh, I believe it was Thursday, and uh, drove in there with her daughter, stepped out of the car and fell and broke her hip, and ended up spending the night, obviously, under the, the, the surgeon's knife, and now is in the hospital herself. And I'm sure when she got up that morning to go visit her husband, she thought what an encouragement she would be to her husband and what a wonderful day it was to have both her legs working right. But by the end of the day, she was waking up droggy from the anesthetic, um, but praising God. And that's what we see here with Paul and Silas. It says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What an amazing response to such a difficult situation. I think in my life I'm learning again and again that prayer and praise do go together. Particularly in difficult circumstances, they go together. Prayer often mixes two realities of life. One is the sheer difficulty of the circumstances that we're in. 
which at times for many of us can be almost unbearable, and it causes us to cry out to God in prayer because of the difficulties we find ourselves in. But at the same time, those of us who are walking with God and learning more about God, it's also mixed though with joy and praise. Because we've come to understand that we can trust God. Because we've come to understand that even though we don't like what's happening to us, even though we don't like what's going on around us, that God is still in control, that God is still sovereign, that God is good, that God is just, that God is holiness. And so in the midst of our prayer and our pain, we praise God with song and with worship. I think as we come to this text, it's it's struck me just in Acts 16, I think God wants us to know something, and that's about prayer. We started understanding this in, in Lydia, the example of Lydia, when they go to uh, they first come to Philippi and they don't find a synagogue. And so it says they go to a river to a place of prayer. And then last week, as we were gathering together, we read right away that uh, they came again looking for a place of prayer. And now we come again to the very next story, the third one in a row, and we find them praying. I think it's very clear that, that God wants to try and drive something home to us as his people. And that prayer should be part of the regular part of our lives as followers of God. How do we begin our day? How do we end our day? Um, What do we do in the midst of our day? Do we have a destination or a place that we go to pray? We talked a little bit about that last week, having a destination or a place that we go to pray. I think here we find an example of what it means to pray at all times or in every circumstance and in every situation to pray because now they're not at a destination of prayer. They find themselves in a jail and what are they doing? They are praying. And I don't know about you, I was trying to think in my head, well, if I found myself in the same circumstances as Paul and Silas, what would I be praying for? And a bunch of things flew through my mind, and I don't know if any of them would actually be true, because I've never been in that situation. But maybe they were praying for deliverance. Maybe one of the first things that came to their mind is, God, you got us into this situation, you got to get us out of this situation. Maybe it was prayer for wisdom, because they knew that, that when they faced the magistrates in the morning, that it was going to be a difficult job to talk to them. And so maybe they were praying for wisdom. Or maybe they were mad. Maybe they were angry with God about how their day had ended, about about the pain in their back, and and were just railing at God. And so their prayer was more of a lamentation. It was more of a a, a sort of an expression of their, their frustration towards God. Maybe mixed with all of that was prayer for joy. As they thought about Christ on the cross and as he suffered, in the midst of terrible suffering, but with great joy and confidence, knowing what would be accomplished through his suffering. And so maybe they thought, God, we don't know really what you're going to do in this and through this, but we just praise you and we, 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 we just pray to you. And would you work this out for your good and for our glory? Or for your, our good and for your glory? The psalmist says very clearly in Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will answer you. I think at the very basic core of what they were doing. They were just calling out to God. They knew that he was alive. They knew that he listened and they knew that he was up to something good, even though they didn't see it at that point. I've been reading a book on prayer this past week um, for a couple of weeks and sitting on my deck yesterday reading another chapter and it was on Luke chapter 18, verse one. And uh, Jesus gives away the, 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 the core of the teaching before he even tells the parable. And he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I think it would be very easy to be in a jail with your back torn apart and your shirt ripped off of you in the stench of the inner prison and lose heart. But they were praying that they might not lose heart. 
Added to that, though, was praise. Praise is a, an amazing thing when you mix it with prayer. It's a choice to look beyond the circumstances to the God of our circumstances. It's to know that our times are in His hands and to understand that we need to accept both prosperity and adversity from God because God gives both of those to us. As I was reading again in the book of Job this week, that as Job suffered the loss of so much, when he came before God, he said, Naked I came into this world and naked I will leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is praise mixed with prayer. That is a giving oneself over to God even in the midst of such difficult, difficult circumstances. We are to find joy in our trials. I was thinking of this reading the book of Romans again. A portion there and it says, Therefore, since we have been made right with God, in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. Why? Because we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance, strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. And so as they were in the midst of these difficult circumstances, mixing prayer and praise, they had a certain amount of joy because they knew what it was affecting in their life and the hope that it was establishing within them. And little did they know as they were sitting there singing and praising God that God had them there for a specific reason so that they might speak the word of the Lord to this Philippian jailer and his family. I was reflecting on this and just realizing that they must have expressed, uh, as they were singing, a great confidence in the sovereignty of God. Here is their trust in, in his protection and their provision for them. Here is joy in the Lord regardless of their circumstances. And it, as it says in Romans, we can rejoice because we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I would say to you, you know, that if you haven't already, that it would be a good thing to read the book of Philippians. Because Paul is in Philippi meeting these Christians who we will ten years later write a letter to them. And in that book of Philippians, one of the main themes woven throughout the book of Philippians is joy and rejoicing. You find it again and again, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. And there's a very familiar verse that many of us understand uh, from that book. It's just simply this, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And so Paul was demonstrating this, Silas was demonstrating this as they were in the inner parts of that prison, fastened to those bonds, their backs sore and bleeding. They were praying and singing and rejoicing. The next phrase is uh, something that we shouldn't ignore. It simply says, and the prisoners were listening to them. And the prisoners we're listening to them. People are always watching us. People are always listening to us. I think as parents, that's one of the things that we um, can't learn soon enough. That our kids are always watching us. They're always listening to us. Our middle son, Aaron, has just extraordinary ears. I don't quite know where he got them from, but in, in, uh, when we lived in Maple Ridge, we had a three-story um, townhouse, and Kath and I would sometimes be sitting upstairs on the third story just chatting with one another. And 
And we'd hear echoing up through the stairways, I heard that! And <laughs> how did he hear that? But people are always listening to us. When Jesus was on the cross, you can bet people were listening to every word that Jesus was saying. And there's books that have been written on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And when we get to the story, the end of the story of Jesus on the cross, we read finally about one of the main centurions. And he said at the end, when when Christ finally died, he said, surely this was the Son of God. Why? Because he had heard Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had heard Jesus say, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. We see on the cross the same thing expressed as the as the thieves were started out both mocking Jesus and both ridiculing Jesus. And then something happened, and I believe it must have been what Jesus was saying, the way that he showed love to John's mother, the way that or to his mother, the way that he showed kindness to those that were crucifying him. And finally, just before he died, the thief on the cross, one of them turned to him and said, Would you remember me this day when you die? And Jesus said to him, Surely you will be with me in paradise today. He was listening to Jesus even in the midst of his intense suffering and sorrow. Kath and I were in the hospital this past week uh, visiting a few people and uh, um, we were just finishing spending time with an individual that we just had a wonderful conversation with and had ended with a time of prayer together. And as we were walking out, um, a little weak voice uh, just kind of chipped up and said, what church are you guys from? And my wife, without thinking, says, the Pentecostal church. (laughs) And that's where she was born and raised, and so she's still got that in her blood. And I said, no, it's Baptist, Kat. And so, so we told the lady it was the Baptist church. And she says, would you guys pray for me? And so she called us into her little cubby, and she'd been in the hospital for four months. Her family was a mess. Her husband was a mess. Her children were a mess. Her mother was a mess. She says, I heard you praying for the lady next door for me, and we wonder if you could pray for us. People are listening to you, beloved. And so here, as Paul and Silas were praying and worshiping God in the midst of their pain and difficult circumstances, people were listening, watching, wondering how they were going to react and what they were going to do in those circumstances. The second thing that we see in this passage is that uh, it amazes me that a prison is nothing before the risen Lord. In verse 26, it tells us very clearly that suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You know that a prison is no barrier to God. We find that the early apostles found themselves frequently in prison. I don't quite understand it all. It was just the way, I guess, that society worked in those days. But we find that God was just as frequently delivering them from prison. We find it in Acts chapter 5. That we find there that uh, they were freed from prison by the hand of God. It says they arrested the, the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Or in Acts chapter 12, we find there that Peter had been thrown in prison. And that very next morning, he was going to be executed like John the Baptist had been executed. But we read there that, that um, he had described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And we remember how an angel came in and and. And, and delivered him from the prison situation. So a prison is no match for God. And we find here something rather extraordinary, an earthquake. Now in Philippi, an earthquake was really not an unusual circumstance. Earthquakes was in Philippi were like earthquakes in California. They just lived in an earthquake zone. 
And in fact, in 619 AD, there was such a tremendous earthquake in Philippi that it basically devastated the city and it was never rebuilt. So earthquakes were not something that were uncommon in this place. And so some of you might say, well, there you go. Nothing supernatural here. It's just a natural phenomenon. An earthquake happened and voila, the, the prison doors were open. But I think as I think about that is, well, how do you explain the timing of the earthquake then? How do you explain the exact moment in the midnight when they were in jail and they, they needed an earthquake, let's say, and there was an earthquake and it happened? It can't be coincidence to my mind. And I know that the timing of God was absolutely providential here. But I leave you to just think about this on your own for a minute. Did God command the earth to shift on precisely the night that Paul and Silas were in prison? Which he could have. Which I believe he has the power to do. If Jesus and uh, can sit on a boat with a stormy sea and he can speak and immediately the wind and the waves die down. The God who made the ha- mountains and put them in place. And in fact, we just sang the song, did we not? Do we believe what we sang? He can move mountains. He is mighty to save. So did God all of a sudden say, earth, shake? Or did God, on the other hand, say, you know, I know there's an earthquake coming on on uh, 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 Sunday night, and so I better have Paul and Silas in prison on Sunday night so when the earthquake happens, the doors can be opened and they can be delivered. I don't know which way it happened. I just know God knew that it was going to happen. Whether he made it happen or put him in jail, it happened. And how do you explain then also that the door were open? Well, that's fine. The door opens. There was a shake and, you know, things move around and pop, the door goes open. But how do you explain the fact that all the bonds on people's hands and legs came open as well? It's like somebody had a key and went up and inserted it into every single one of those and released them. No, beloved, I choose to believe the power of God that is expressed again and again and again in Scripture. That if God can command whales and trees and seas, God can certainly command the ground to shake and cause it to open doors and loosen bonds. Beloved, this is our Father's world. And you and I might not find ourselves in jail this week, but we may find ourselves up against circumstances of which we do not know how we're going to get out of them. We do not know how God is going to deliver us. We do not know what God might enact, otherwise we are doomed. Beloved, God is able to move heaven and earth to free prisoners. He can certainly deliver you from the situation that you find yourself this week. God is able to move, I find here, heaven and earth to call people to himself. And again, I was just reflecting on that song that we were led in today. Our God is mighty to save. He can move mountains. And in fact, that's what we see happening here. And beloved here at this church and members of PFBC, I want you to become absolutely convinced in the providence of God. I want you to know that nothing happens by chance. I want you to know there is no such thing as luck, that everything that occurs in this earth occurs because God has ordained it, God sustains it, God is directing it, God is guiding it, and there is nothing that happens outside of God's sovereign control. And we see that taking place in the salvation of this one particular Philippian and his family. I was just impressed and overjoyed again as I was thinking about this, the personalization of salvation. God doesn't save us all the same way. God is miraculous in the way that every single one of us has been drawn to him in unique, specific ways. And we need to think about that. If we were to just stop the service and give five minutes to everyone here who professes faith in Jesus Christ and says, tell us, 
about the way God brought you to faith in Christ, we would hear about all kinds of mountain-moving stories. About the way God moved us from one city to another, a place God moved us from one job to another, the way God found us in the circumstances we're in, the way God brought one specific person at just the right time to tell us his gospel, about a Sunday school teacher, about a pastor, about a parent, about a grandparent, the way God had placed those circumstances ideally so they matched with the condition of our hearts and we responded in a saving way to Jesus Christ. Beloved, don't think in an accident if you end up in hospital bed this week in a room with two or four other people. Thank God that maybe he's placed you there because the person next to you needs to hear about Jesus. Maybe you're on a plane this week and you don't want to be by yourself or you want to be by yourself and somebody sits down in the chair beside you and looks at the book you're reading and says, what are you reading? You think, oh, I should have had my hoodie on. <laughs> but maybe God has placed them there for that specific reason at a specific time so that you can share Jesus Christ with them. We need to think more clearly about these kinds of things in these situations, in these circumstances. They are not by accident. It is not by accident that Paul and Silas found themselves in jail that day and that night. God had placed them there specifically so they could share the good news of the gospel with this jailer and his family. And we read the story and we realize that after the earthquake had happened, this jailer was really concerned and he should have been. I mentioned earlier that he would forfeit his life if the prisoners were gone and he was ready to take his sword and kill himself. And Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. And it's like he just collapsed at that moment. It's like everything in him, his fear, his, his anxiety, his sin, it all sort of weighed upon him. And he collapsed before them and he asked the most important question that any one of us can ever ask in our life. It matters more than anything. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There is no more important question that you can ever ask in this life than what must I do to be saved? This is not just a theoretical question. It comes from a conviction in his heart that something wasn't right. Why did he ask the question? I don't know. Maybe as he lay in bed that night, he overheard heard Paul and Silas singing and praying. He thought, what is going on here? What are these guys talking about? Maybe he had been present when they had beaten him. And he knew that they, what they had done. And he knew that they had done nothing to deserve having their backs ripped apart by the rods. Maybe he had been present when Paul had had enough of that servant girl and said, enough! come out of her, and the Spirit delivered her, and she was sane for the first time in her life. Maybe he had come across Lydia in the marketplace a couple days earlier, and Lydia was a different person. She had never been the same, and he had bought some cloth maybe for his wife, and he had chatted with Lydia, and she had shared about Jesus Christ with him. I don't know, but something was going on in this man's head that he finally came and he said, what must I do to be saved? Answer the phone. It might be Jesus calling. Charles Spurgeon once preached a sermon, and it was on the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Some of you may be familiar with the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. There were six of them uh, provided by, by, um, by God for people who had um, accidentally killed somebody. In those days, in the days of Israel, it was, they lived under the law of lex talianus, which simply meant an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. And if you accidentally killed somebody and you hadn't had time to sort of explain your case, the family could, if they found you, they could come and kill you. Take your life for the life of the one you had killed. And so these cities of refuge were prepared so people could run to them and find safety until the situation could be worked out. 
And Charles Spurgeon indicated that there was a law that told the Jews to make sure that these roads were well cared for and were unobstructed. If any stones had fallen on these roads, they were to remove the stones. If any bridges had fallen down, they were to rebuild them. Furthermore, they were to set up signs along the pathway, marking the direction to these cities so that when these individuals who were under such extreme pressure of the moment and they were fleeing as a fugitive, perhaps they were being chased by a avenger, they could see the signs and they would have no eye or they would have no, um, uh, they wouldn't be concerned at all that they were going in the right direction. Spurgeon said that that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing with the Philippian jailer here. He was making the way straight to the city of refuge. For this Philippian jailer. And he said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. That is the most important truth. You can ever know about salvation. The most important question is. What must I do to be saved? The most important answer. And you've got to wrestle with this. Is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You know salvation is not a matter of doing. Salvation is not a matter of achieving. Salvation is not a matter of earning. Salvation is not a matter of inheriting. Salvation is not a matter of even accepting. Salvation is a matter of believing. It is a matter of putting your full weight and trust upon Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done for you. That is the amazing, extraordinary thing about salvation. It takes it completely out of our hands and it puts it wholly into God's hands. When Jesus was on the cross and He died, again, you remember what He said. He said, it is is finished. What? The whole work of salvation. The accomplishment of salvation. The penalty for our sins was paid. As when Jesus was punished by God, the wrath of our sins was complete. There is nothing more to do. There is nothing more that God has to say about our sin. It is completed in Jesus Christ. And that's why it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is some content to salvation, loved ones. And that's why I love what it says here. When he says, what must I do to be saved? Their answer was succinct. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, you and your household. That was the fact of salvation. But then it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to them and all who were in the house. There is content to faith. Faith is not contentless. In other words, it's not, well, I just believe the sky is blue. I just believe that flowers are red. And I just believe that Jesus saves me. I'm saved. No. What is it about Jesus that saves you? What is it that you are believing that makes your salvation possible? There is content to our salvation. And we find out, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, it means to understand that He is God's Son sent for our salvation. It means that we understand that when we celebrate Christmas, we remember that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That it wasn't just a human man, that this was in fact God who took on human flesh and became like one of us. That's why Jesus' name meant Emmanuel, God with us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So one of the things that we have to understand is Jesus is a man just like you and I. He's lived the life that we lived. He suffered the kinds of things that we suffered. He's been tempted in every way like you and I have been tempted. But what? He's without sin. He has never sinned. That's a good thing. Chalk that up. That's a good thing. But it's not just enough that Jesus be a good man. Because if he was just a good man, then when he died, all his salvation could affect was for himself. 
that, it, that he had to be the Lord as well. He had to be God as well. If he wasn't God, his salvation couldn't save anybody else. But the Bible tells us that not only was he fully man, but he was fully God. And because he is fully God, then he can take the sins of every single one of us upon himself and he can die in our place. And so when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what we do is we believe that Jesus Christ was the perfect man, but he was also God and that he lived the life that we could never live. He lived, a, he, he lived in obedience to God in a way that we can never live in obedience to God. All our guilt, all our shame, all our um, anger, all God's wrath towards us was taken off of us and it was placed on Jesus Christ. And every bit of Jesus' obedience, every bit of his goodness, every bit of his holiness, every bit of his righteousness was taken from Jesus and it was placed on us. So what happens is when we believe in Jesus Christ, that God looks at us as though he looks at his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, all of our sins have been dealt with. All of his wrath towards us has been dealt with. And so we are made pure and clean and we are forgiven. In salvation simply means I believe that Jesus did that for me. And so what does it mean to be saved? It means to believe that Jesus Christ died in my place, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin, and that Jesus Christ gave me the righteousness by which I now stand before God. And as Paul sat there and he, he, he spoke that to this family, they accepted it. They believed it. And I think the wonderful thing about this is who can be saved? Anyone who believes that. Whoever comes to Jesus Christ, he won't cast out anybody. You might say, well, I'm not rich enough, or I'm too poor, or you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know, you don't know what my life history has been. I don't care what that's been, because it's been dealt with at the cross. And whoever believes that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for their sin will be saved. It's simple. It's extraordinary. And so the Philippian jailer in his house believed. And they were saved. It says the very next thing that happened is that he took them that same hour of the night and he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. You see here immediately something of the impact of becoming a Christian. You know, there, I, I don't understand the way all this works, but I do understand this, that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ and when all of a sudden you are saved, you, the Bible says you become a new creature in Christ. We have a song that we used to sing, I'm a new creation, I'm a brand new man, all things are washed away. Um, something like that. I've got it mixed up a little bit. But, but it's what it means to be born again. Uh, and so when you become a Christian, you are changed. And immediately, those changes begin to be known. And so in this case, before, he didn't give a rip about Paul and Silas. Let them suffer. I hope their wounds get infected. I don't care about them. I just want them out of my jail. Now, says that he took them, took some water, took a cloth, and he started washing their wounds. The transformation of Christ was already evident in their life as he started caring for his brothers in Christ. And I wonder in my own head, and I don't have any proof for this, but I wonder as he was washing their wounds and as he was taking the dirt and, you know, and getting rid of some of the infection that was maybe already setting in, as he was doing that, Paul and Silas started telling him, you know, it's important that you be baptized. Because when you're baptized, Jesus washes away the filth of your sin. That when you're baptized, it's a way of demonstrating to other people what God has done for you on the inside. 
and that, that the water is just a way of, when you get baptized, it's just a way of symbolizing that Jesus Christ, just as you're washing my wounds, that Jesus Christ has washed the wounds of my sin away and that now I am clean. And you know that, that when you go down into the water, what that symbolizes is that you actually die and you've died with Christ. And then when you come up out of the water, it means that, that you are now living with Christ and that's in fact what has happened in your heart and so you need to be baptized. And he and his family was baptized. And I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I'll say it again. If you're not baptized, why not? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've been a Christian for more than, uh, I would say, even months, I was going to say weeks and days, why aren't you baptized? What's holding you back? As I look at baptized, being baptized in the Scripture, baptism is part of the conversion experience, as I explained a couple of weeks ago. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. When you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're changed inside. And now you need to show that externally. And so you show it by baptism. And I like to think of baptism as a signal that the journey of your Christian life has begun. And the Lord's Supper is the signal that your Christian life is continuing. And so when you become a follower of Jesus, demonstrate it to all of us by being baptized. Say, I have been born again. And then join with us at the Lord's table month after month and say, I am continuing with Jesus Christ. What power there is in the name of Jesus Christ. The name in which they were saved. I wonder if uh, later he would read some of the different passages of Scripture. He drew me up from the pit of disruption or destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. I wonder if there was a song just welling up and pouring up inside of him. We don't have to run, wonder any longer because we read the next couple verses. It says, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. Rejoiced. Didn't we sing a song a little bit earlier about rejoicing in salvation? And, you know, the kids were dancing. and There's nothing wrong with that, loved ones. When you know that you have gone from death to life, when you know that you have gone from darkness to light, when you know that your sins have been forgiven, when you know that the shame and the guilt of your sins has been washed away, when you know that you are now a child of God, when you know that everything that is God's is now yours, isn't that worth rejoicing about? Isn't that something to be excited about? What a breakfast that must have been. I don't know about you, but I don't know what they cooked up, um, you know, whatever they were doing, but I bet there was tears mixed with joy, mixed with laughter. You know, man, I've never felt like this. I've never known that God could do this for me. Man, this is, I, I just, I didn't realize that there could be so much relief and release that comes to me when I put my faith in Jesus Christ and together they just rejoice. I was reading in, uh, I think it was Luke, um, about the story of the, the woman who lost a coin and the man who lost a sheep. And they go out and they search for it and the woman finds her coin and the man finds his sheep and they start rejoicing. And Jesus' response to them was that, um, I tell you, there, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is a cause of great rejoicing. See, Paul would later write to the Philippians, and I think I already encourage you to read the book of Philippians, but he would later write to this church, which now included this Philippian and jailer in his household, that I believe it included this slave girl that had been delivered, and Lydia in her household. And he would say to them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
your life can be miserable. Things can be going difficult for you. Just go back to the day you were saved and rejoice. Rejoice in what God has done. I end with this, just a wide view of salvation from Philippians chapter 16. I think we need to come to grips with this just as a church and for ourselves and be thankful for what God has done. Take a look at the different national origins that are included here. Lydia was an Asian. Now, not Asian in the way that we think of Asian today, but Asian in the sense that she was from Asia Minor. She was an immigrant to Philippia. She was not a native of, of Greece. And then there was the slave girl. She may have been a Greek, but it's hard to believe that she might have been a, uh, a Greek. Slaves were taken from all over the known realm. They were bought and, and traded like trading cards. So she could have come from anywhere in the Roman Empire. And then we have the jailer. He was most likely a Roman. Philippi was populated with Roman veterans who had gone there to retire. So here we have three different cultures all becoming united in Christ Jesus. Christ crosses cultural barriers. The second thing that you see is the social background. So it's unique to just see this as, as these three stories illustrate that Lydia was a wealthy, wealthy businesswoman. She was there on business. She probably had a, a trade and a business and it, clearly she had a home large enough to host these four extra guests for a certain period of time. On the other end of the economic spectrum, we have this slave girl. She owned nothing. She didn't even own her own body. She was owned by her slave master. She was controlled by a spirit. Everything that she earned went to her owners. She had absolutely nothing. And then we have the jailer, probably somewhere, somewhere in the middle, living on some kind of pension or retirement from the army and, and um, represented sort of the middle class. We see there the extent of the gospel. It can reach those who are wealthy beyond degree. It can reach those who have nothing and everything in between. And then we have the personal needs. I think this is important too that, you know, the, the gospel reaches every one of us. Lydia, I think, just had a mind that I would have loved to chat with her. It says that she, she, she was listening to what the, what the apostles were saying and she was paying attention there was, there was something going on in her head and she was trying to wrestle with this God thing and was there only one God and did he actually create this world and, and you know, why did she need to be saved? And she was probably had all these amazing questions that were going on in her head and so, in a sense, she was reasoned into the kingdom of God, if we can put it that way. She had this great mind, this great intellect. On the other hand, we have the slave girl and I do believe that she became a follower of Jesus Christ. But what was her greatest need? I think the slave girl's greatest need was a psychological need. I don't know about you, but I, I, I can't imagine she was ever loved in her life. She might have been taken as a young baby or as a young girl out of her home, and now she would never be in a home with a mom and dad anymore. And she just had a desire to be loved. She had a desire to be free, not controlled. She had a desire to find out who she really was, not who everybody else determined that she was. And in the course of her life, she had lost her individuality and her identity. In fact, we don't even know her name. She was just called a slave girl. And you might have come in today and you say, nobody knows me. Nobody gives a rip about me. You don't know the life that I've lived. God doesn't care about me. I'd say, oh, yes, he does. I was reading again in the prophet Isaiah, and he says, But now, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. 
you are mine. Psalm 139, and I think we need to say this. It says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when there was not yet one of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You may not feel that you're loved. You may not feel that anyone knows who you are, but God does. God loves you, and God knows you. And this slave girl came to realize that love in Christ Jesus. And then there was the Philippian jailer. I think his need was moral. I think finally he was just crushed under the weight of his sin. He'd been a Roman army officer. He had probably done just brutal things in the course of campaigns as they went about from country to country dealing with different people and dealing with different races. His mind must have just been overwhelmed with all the images and all the pictures and all the horrific things that he had done wrong. All the different places they had stayed and the things that they had done. As he was confronted with the power of God and he was confronted with what he saw in these men, he said, what must I do to be saved? It's like Peter had said to the people, and their hearts were cut to the quick. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's just God's way of drawing out pictures to show us the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so again, the most important question you can ever ask, what must I do to be saved? The most important answer that you can ever consider and come to grips with, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.